ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chicky Fitzgerald. Good afternoon. It is Chicky Fitzgerald, and we are talking about game-changing leadership today. I am so glad you joined us. It is a glorious day here in Tampa, Florida, and after uh, all of the storms that we battled last week with Matthew, it is nice to see the sun out. We have got a very special show for you today, and, and I have a very personal connection to uh, what you will hear from this particular author's background. Uh, our guest today is Jonathan Raymond, and he is the author of a book called Good Authority. And uh, Jonathan, I'm going to let you tell us a little bit about your background before we jump into talking about the book. Welcome. Thanks so much, Chicky. Appreciate uh, having me on the show. We, we, we. I think we've got the storms that uh, have, they've headed to the northwest now. I'm in Oregon, so we've got our we've got our share oh, of bad weather dear. today. <laughs> um, so the you know the book and the ideas uh, really came out of, and I, I'm sure we'll get into EMS and you know talk a little bit about that experience. But it really came out of a kind of a crucible moment uh, in my life where um, I, I discovered that. As much as I had or thought I had good ideas and, and good practices and uh, had a sense of myself as a leader in, in different leadership roles, that I had become somebody that I, that I didn't want to be and that the, the position of leadership that I had found myself in, both as the CEO of EMYTH, but also uh, in my life, uh, that I had come to a place of really a reckoning in myself of who do I want to be and, and what, are the, what are the ways that I'm going to show up in the world uh, to be there. And... Uh, the, the, the short version of it is that uh, what I found myself doing up to that point was toggling between a more traditional approach to authority of, you know, kind of being the boss and keeping my keeping my cards close and, and you know, really, really pushing and driving and leading my teams. And then on the flip side, finding myself being trying to be everybody's friend, trying to be very nice, <laughs> trying to be very compassionate. And neither and of those how'd two, that work for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not very well. And so, uh, and I saw that really in in both our managers uh, that that we were um, that we were bringing up through the ranks in our organization, and I saw this in our clients where where there was everybody was sort of flip flopping between you know trying to quote unquote get things done and then trying to create a positive culture, and good authority is is an attempt to bridge those two polarities uh, mm -hmm. to to not over inhabit authority but not under inhabit it either. Right. Well, I'm sure we're going to get into uh, what's behind all of that. And I forgot to share the tagline of the book, which is brilliant and, and really inspiring, by the way, how to become the leader that your team is waiting for. And the mm. thing I love about that subtitle, and, and I'd love to hear your story about how it emerged as the, the winner, because I know that, uh, you know, working <laughs> with publishers and coming up with all of that is is uh, can be a bit challenging. But the thing I love about this is it is not an indictment of the fact that you're not a good leader and you're buying a book on leadership, mm. right? It's really an encouragement that you can be this, mm -hmm. right? And, and that, that uh, you know, for, for many of us who are in leadership, we were, we were actually born to do this, mm. right? It, this is not an accident of, you know, I chose 
you know, to be the CEO of a, of a tech company, which is what I do as my day job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it was actually meant to be. And so actually stepping into that is a completely logical thing. Uh, mm-hmm. to have happen in our own evolution. And, and I actually, I just want to come on, on one other thing that you said, and, and then, uh, you know, you can uh, continue to give us that background. Uh, but, you know, I, I loved when you talked about your crucible moment, because I cannot tell you how many times I've told my own story, you know, which usually ends up kind of sounding a little bit like a resume. You know, mm-hmm. you, you walk through each job you've had. And the last time I told my story to somebody, and I didn't use the word crucible moment, but I might in the future, is I uh, talked about the pivot points in my career. Mm. And, and, and that shaped the story totally differently. And, uh, you know, I, I think part of recognizing who we are is, is making sure that you can tell that story. So I want to back up in your story uh, because you're, you're currently the owner of an online uh, training, and you call it a startup, uh, that, you know, offers your training programs that are shaped around this philosophy that you've espoused in the book. And, but before that... Um, you were the CEO and chief brand officer of Emeth. And, you know, as I mentioned before we got on the air, uh, you know, that was one of the first books that I ever bought about entrepreneurialism. Mm. And again, I've told the story of that book and how it impacted me to so many people mm. uh, over the years, uh, be, uh, particularly when we're talking about um, organizational structure and mm-hmm. and how do you actually build an organization from a startup company because uh, you know oddly enough you you can't start hiring at the bottom it, you know and, and then build on that which is is kind of how some other businesses emerge so tell us how uh, you got uh, into that role um, you know how did you get to know Michael Gerber and and just tell us about that evolution yeah. It it was uh, it really was connected to 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 multiple crucible moments in my life, uh, you know I I graduated law school back in 1998, and after a very brief uh, tenure as a lawyer, even though I, I'm not one of those people who thinks you know lawyers are awful, I think you know there's a lot of wonderful lawyers doing great work in the world. Uh, the the profession in general, at least at the corporate level, can be a soul crushing uh, endeavor. But uh, you know I'm a, I, I love lawyers. I love the way they think. I love the ability to people who can see a problem from more than one angle. And I think that's that's really the greatest strength of lawyers. Uh, but what happened for me was I really, you know, I, I became quite disillusioned with the with being in a large corporate environment. You know, this was a lawyer, uh, a firm with 500 lawyers in, in one office in a skyscraper in Manhattan. And I had friends who were working in investment banks. I had some friends who were, you know, working in, you know, tech startups, di- you know, different things that people were trying but there was something that was that felt really missing for me from the from the experience of work itself. Uh, I felt like there wasn't, you know, I, now I can put words to it, but I didn't feel like I was getting any of that kind of apprentice mentoring guidance, somebody who was really looking out for me and my development. And I didn't feel like I was getting any of that. And at the same time, this was in the late 90s, where I was going headlong into I had somebody had introduced me to the practice of meditation and mindfulness. I had the started of practice of yoga. I had gotten, you know, I'd sort of gone off the, my own personal deep end, you know, based on my more traditional background into a whole host of spiritual, philosophical, personal mm-hmm. growth approaches. And what, ha- what happened for me was I, w- I really was bouncing back and forth between those two sides of me for about a decade. 
And so from 2000 to 2010, I was, you know, I had some startups. I worked in some in a mobile technology company. I started a nonprofit. I, I, I opened up a clean energy company with, a, with an engineer. But my heart was really in the search. I was really trying to figure out who was I as a man? How did I want to show up in the world? And, and what was my what was my place in the in the grand order of things? Or the grand disorder of things, as it sometimes right, feels. Right, as it as it were. <laughs> yeah, and um, and so it, somehow on that journey, I met the owner of Emit, uh, the controlling shareholder, who Michael Gerber uh, is happens to be Michael Gerber's ex-wife, and oh, uh, and I Michael Gerber, that. yeah, and Michael Gerber actually had uh, was no longer involved in the company actively. He was a, still a major shareholder, but not involved in the company actively when I took over as the CEO. This was back in 2011. And the, the company was, you know, it's, it's, you know, as everybody, well, most listeners know, it's a very, very popular book, you know, depending upon who's right, you know, millions and millions of copies, very, you know, on all kinds of bestseller lists. And, you know, this is a book you, one of the books you've got to read as an entrepreneur. And, and I thought, wow, this is, this is amazing. This is incredible. What an opportunity to uh, be in this leadership role to try to modernize and bring this brand, which even though there were some really good ideas in there, the brand had become quite dated, right? And, and, and the infrastructure needed to be modernized and, and the culture was, was pretty stagnant from my perspective. And so for me, it felt like the culmination of both sides of me where I, the business guy in me was, was looking at this you know, amazing opportunity to grow a, an established business and, and, do, and, and have it be something that it had, had yet to become in the world. And of course, you know, coaching and consulting is, is at least theoretically uh, all about personal growth and finding out who we are and, you know, how the business or the culture is reflective of how we're showing up or how we're not showing up. And so to me, it, it seemed like a dream come true uh, in terms of a position. And then, uh, and maybe we can get into that. But what I, what I found was that while, while for me, there was a lot of good ideas and, and essential ingredients in building a, a stable organizational structure and some of the, obviously some of the systems and the amazing tools in there. There was one part of the conversation that that was all I wanted to focus on, which was culture. And I wanted to focus on the individual conversation between managers and employees. And it's not that I wasn't interested in marketing and sales and structure and technology. I'm fascinated by all those things, but that wasn't in my heart of hearts what I felt like I was put on the earth to do. And so, so that's where I decided to break away and say, you know what, this emyth is its thing, and it's going to keep doing its thing. But I'm going to go do my thing, and uh, and that's right. why I left in 2015. Well, and and it gave you that great foundation uh, mm-hmm. because, you know, from from the beginning that that book was just so real. I often said that the only mistake I think that that Michael made in that first in the writing of the first story was making. Um, making the story about something as sim- simplistic as pie baking. Although, <laughs> again, I tell that story so many times about you know all of the details that were involved and and you know how he um, you know told the story about her having uh, you know feeling compelled because everybody said you make great pies you got to start a pie shop you know and and there's so many great parallels to that. But mm-hmm. you know the evolving company culture that came out of the way that the organization was built was was really brilliant and you know i actually didn't know that and I, I kind of consider it a franchise you know of of the you know taking the e-myth concept with the pie baker and now you've got e-myth chiropractor and dentist right and, you know all these other iterations of it but but anyway it, it certainly did give you that great background so you know in the preface of this book um you 
tell a story, uh, and you call it John versus the volcano. Can you give us a little insight into that? That's intriguing. Yeah, it was. Uh, I was um, about one year into the formal practice of law. I had been through law school, and if anybody who anybody who's ever been through that journey knows, it's a very stressful, emotionally taxing <laughs> journey through you know forty-seven interviews and the whole deal. And I had uh, I decided to take a week away, and I went down to Costa Rica with a, a couple of law school pals of mine. And, you know, we were all miserable. You know, we were, you know, first year grunts in, in big law firms. And we just we just said, you know, we got to we got to none of us were married at the time. And we decided to to get away and we decided to go down to Costa Rica for, I don't know, eight, nine days. And uh, what's that? Pura Vida. Yes. Yes. Costa Rica. And, and we and we started wandering around and 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 I could see that, I, you know, I was just trying to digest this experience that of this very intense kind of four year experience of, you know, I, you know, going through law school and the, you know, all of the energy and intention and, and all the hope of what was going to come out of this, you know, incredibly intense, immersive educational experience and being in a big law firm and my eyes opening to, you know, the way people, you know, these were people at the very, very top of the game and how they were treating other human beings. And, and I just, I could, I, I was, we, we were walking up this volcano and one day, you know, and we just, uh, not an active volcano. Well, it's partially active, but not where we were walking. And uh, at some point, we just, the skies just opened up and it started pouring rain, like a torrential Central American rain. And, you know, probably, you know, similar to the rains you get in Tampa and, you know, other places. In Oregon, we get a little more kind of the, the gradual stuff. But uh, something just clicked in me. And, I, you know, we were just walking down this trail and trying to make our way back to the lodge. And it wasn't dangerous per se, but it, but it was definitely dodgy. And, and something about that experience and being out in nature and, and breathing the air and, and feeling myself as, a, as an alive being was in such stark contrast to the daily life that I was living, feeling like I was stuck in this cubicle. And even though I had an office, but, you know, the cubicle energetically, let's say. And, and something just snapped in me. And I said, you know, I can't do this anymore. I, this, is not, this is not the purpose of human life. This is not... You know, I, I was just beginning to explore my relationship to the divine and and to to grander things, and I, and I just knew whatever what whatever else was true, I knew that I couldn't go back uh, to that life, and so uh, that's the story that I that I talk about in the beginning of the book, of really of really feeling compelled to find some other way to work, uh, and that's and that's the journey that I went on. Right. So the the title of the book, uh, Good Authority, is the next thing that you talk about. And, you know, when when we see those words together, um, we're not actually um, predisposed to think about goodness. You know, we're we're thinking about good authority as, you know, I have it on good authority that this is true, right? So it's a validation of truth um, as opposed to a leader being an authority figure and also at the same time being filled with goodness, which Mm. you're right. I mean, there are so many situations and, you know, I love what you talked about of of soul crushing leadership, which Mm. I grew up uh, in the business world um, as a part of American Airlines and and its technology division, which was uh, the Sabre organization. And, you know, at the time, the CEO of the company was Bob Crandall, who came out of finance and if you didn't know your numbers, you didn't know your business. And if you didn't know your business, you couldn't work for him, right? Mm. And, and you know, he took great pleasure in crushing people, you know, like in his quarterly mm. meetings. And, and so I grew up kind of thinking that's 
that is how you lead because right. you know, I was there for 10 years and I moved over to a competitive company that happened to be owned by Delta Northwest and TWA, but it was in Atlanta. So it had more of that Delta culture of, you know, when you call Delta reservations, they say, oh, you know, how's your mama? You know, and, <laughs> and Northwest was, you know, actually quite the opposite and perhaps much more like American Airlines. But the culture of, of the business unit I was in, you know, which again was a technology company, um, you know, was much more influenced, again, by proximity to Delta of, of just such a kinder, gentler um, managerial style mm. uh, to the point where uh, I, I uh, for the first six weeks of my job, I was afraid to write anything down because I had had a boss uh, in my previous role who no matter what you gave to her and no matter how polished it was or whether somebody else wrote it or, or whether you weren't even asking her to edit it, she'd put tiny little margin notes mm. um, on everything that was written. And my mm. boss finally said to me, you know, one day a couple of months into my new job, he said, you know, you can actually just, you know, leave notes on my desk or, or write me an email. And mm. I realized I was afraid to write. Yeah. 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 So anyway – yeah, Having said that, let's let's circle back to the title, Good Authority, and maybe you can give me a little insight on on how that emerged. Was that your original idea, or did it come out of the experience of writing the book? Uh, it was a little bit of both. You know, the the main concept that I was trying to articulate in the book is that, to me, the era of top down transformation, not only top down leadership, but top down transformation, is over. And the, you know, everybody likes to talk about, including me, I like, I love talking about millennials, but I think, I think to me, millennial is a state of mind. It's not a generational thing. And there are many millennial minded folks who are 40 and 60 and, and 80. Uh, I think there's a, there's a split in our world right now where people, even though, you know, so many people, most people living paycheck to paycheck, and yet people will not stay at work that they don't find personally meaningful. And what does that tell us, right? It's so it puts the, the conversation at a whole other level about what is the requirement of a workplace. And so, you know, these, the, the concept of good authority emerged from, you know, so we talked a little bit about this at the beginning. Like, so, you know, we could say that your old boss or my old boss was bad authority, right? That was, right. that was, that's not, that kind of authority is not going to fly in the modern world. Uh, you may get away with it for a while, but you're going to have this, you're going to have a disengaged team. You're going to, you know, there, there's all kinds of secondary effects of that. And, and, and there's enough literature out there. And, you know, anybody who thinks that that's, that's still a good, the right style of leadership, you know, probably isn't listening to your podcast and, and certainly won't be, uh, won't like my book. But, <laughs> but what I found was that there was, there was this reactionary thing that was happening on the other side. And it's not about in particular about holacracy or, you know, some of the other methodologies. And, you know, I'm on the West Coast, so I get a lot of exposure to these things. But there was a lot of, and there still are, many attempts to flatten and to try to, in my, in my mind, pretend that there is no authority. There's, a, there's an overreaction against that old model of authority to, well, we're all on the same team. No, no, you're not. There's a, there's a CEO who holds everybody's paycheck in their hands. There's a board of directors that the CEO is responsible for, or there should, or there should be. And so their, their hierarchy itself, authority itself is not the problem. And I feel like we've made authority the villain. And authority is not the villain, right? There's nothing wrong. We, we all need people in our lives. Like if you want to become great at a sport, right? You need somebody who knows that sport better than you do, right? If right. you want to get better at uh, 
you know, wh whatever it is, whatever your hobby is, becoming a better tennis player, a better bridge player, you know, if you want to become better at, at coding software, you need somebody who has some authority in that domain that you want to get better at. And, you, and you're saying to them, hey, you know something that I don't yet. Uh, I want to get better at that thing. And so I feel like we've thrown authority out as a, val as a valid construct. And, and so the, the idea is to say, hey, it's not perfect authority. It's not untouchable authority. It's not, you know, uh, all, you know omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful authority. It's just good authority. It's, it's somebody who's a – I love that phrase of, like, you know, a mentor is a couple of steps ahead on the path. And right. that's really the spirit of this. Good authority is if you're in a leadership position, and it's not just the CEO, right? It's a VP. It's a team leader. You know, I work with so many first-time team leaders now, especially in young and growing companies. So many people who are in a leadership position who have never been in a leadership position before. And the, and the mistake that I see them making is not being transparent, not talking about, hey, guys, this is weird. We used to be on the same team, and now I'm the boss of this team. And that's going to change some things between us. We, you know, we can still be friendly. We're still colleagues. But, but I have different responsibilities. I see different data now. And being transparent about these dynamics, to me, is the key to making sure they don't go underground. People aren't stuffing their emotions. Those resentments aren't built up. And we don't internalize these, you know, just to circle back around. What happened for you, and the same thing happened for me, is you internalized a, a, an authority dynamic that, that wasn't real in your new organization, right? It wasn't right. necessary. It wasn't helpful. But until somebody came along and said, hey, you don't, that's not how we do it here. You don't have to show up that way. We carry these past, what I call borrowed authority pictures, we, some that we've learned from others, some that we've internalized ourselves. We carry these forward into our present day life. And so the task becomes, hey, what, what are these pictures of authority? What are these models that I'm holding on to? And which ones don't serve me so that I can put them down? Right, right. You know, um, you, you talk in the first part of the book about, you know, why should you even care? Uh, and, and this is, you know, should you care about good authority or should you care about leadership or, or is it all wrapped together? What, what is it that we should be compelled uh, to care about when it comes to this topic? The, the chapter came out of a, um, you know, this as a, you know, leading a coaching company and, you know, being in this business for a while, you hear the same, you see, you hear versions of the same thing. Uh, for, you know, from leaders and managers and this, this crazy idea about employee engagement data is people say, well, how do I get my team on board, right? And that, that shows up in many forms, right? How do I get people to own their work? How do I get them to take risks? Uh, how do I get them to stretch beyond their comfort zone? You know, how do I create, the, you know, if we borrow back from the old EMIF, you know, lexicon, you know, how do you get people to, you know, so that you can step away from the business so that you can, you know, get some, some freedom factor from the day-to-day -day operations? And, the, and the question that I wanted to ask people in a hopefully provocative way is, as an employee, why should I care? Right. I get it. You know, yeah, you're you're you know, and I think there's this there's this deep belief in in business owners, founders and managers that that people will work for the reasons of the company and people don't go to work for the reasons of the company. People you can write them. I've written some really inspiring. I'm sure you have, too. I've written some really inspiring vision statements. I've done some really great work on company values and really gotten so specific. I've built all kinds of OKRs and KPIs and position agreements and all that kind of stuff. And you know what? It only solves the problem part way because it's, we still haven't made the connection 
to the healthy self-interest of that individual. Why should I care? Yeah, that, great. That's your vision. That's, that's, where, that's where your company wants. How is this going to help me in my life, in my relationships, to become the person that I want to become? And that's what why should I care is about. Why should I care uh, about, about the company vision? Yeah, I think it's a nice. It's, nice. it's, it's a good vision. Uh, I understand what the values are. But all you have to do as a, as a leader is ask yourself, how many times have you repeated those values? How many times have you had the same conversation over and over again? We haven't yet made the connection where there's no question about why they should care. It's because it's as much about them as it is about anybody else. Right, right. So tell me about borrowed authority. And, and you know, it's interesting as you were talking about the word authority, you talked about it in two different contexts. And one of them was um, authority as in, you know, somebody who's over you and has authority over you and control over you. And then the other uh, definition was really much softer, which is I'm, I'm the world authority on multi-channel global distribution systems, right? <laughs> right, right. And, and so that is, is where my expertise lies. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about borrowed authority, are we talking about the expertise side or the control side? We're talking about mostly about the control side. There's a little bit of overlap there. But what we're talking about in terms of borrowed authority is – really, if you think about it as a leader, the way you show up, right? So if you show up as a, let's say you're, uh, you know, um, let's, let's talk about Jonathan, right? So Jonathan shows up and he comes into a new leadership role in a new organization. And he uh, has a really hard time, let's say, uh, I'll choose something that's, that's uh, you know, not my issue, right? Uh, let's say I have a really hard time sharing ideas that I don't, that I can't prove are going are gonna to work. Right? So I don't take the risk to share ideas that I think are, are outside our comfort zone as an organization or as a team. Where did I learn that from? Right? Did I, did, is that just a random thing, that, that John, the way Jonathan relates with leadership? No. It's, it's something that I internalized somewhere along the line. I decided that, and again, this is a fictional example. People who know me wouldn't describe me this way. But <laughs> in this fictional example, I decided that the way to lead is to play it safe to go down the middle, to not share ideas that aren't that people might that might be wrong, that people might go, oh, Jonathan, that's a nutty idea. Why did you, why did you say that? I, I, I would have internalized this idea that I can't do that as a leader. I didn't come up with that idea in a vacuum, right? I didn't, I didn't condition myself to that idea. I got that from my parents. I got that from the culture. I got that from maybe some powerful experiences that I had where I took risks and it didn't work out. And so borrowed authority is when we show up in present day using pictures of how we're supposed to show up from the past that are no longer real for us. But we don't know right. that, right? And so, so borrowed authority is, hey, wh- how am I showing up as a leader in a way that's not, that isn't me, that isn't how I want to show up? And where did I get that from and so right. that I can put it down? Well, and, and you talked a little bit about the employee engagement f- fallacy, which is, you know, write, write the mission statement and they will come, right? And, and <laughs> that that's why, why they're engaged is because you have been so compelling in how you write it. Um, so, you know, we don't need to spend a lot more time on that. But, but you then talk about um, from strength to growth. Hmm. And, and we are often put in positions because of a strength either of character or skill or hopefully both. Right. But 
it's one thing to to be working in a company with those things and and really uh, to stay at status quo, to stay at the same level, and it's quite another to both personally grow, to be able to grow a team, and hopefully as a result also help your company grow. So, mm-hmm. so what is the orientation um, in this context of from strength to growth? What I see happen in most organizations, and again, this can be organizationally or this can be uh, in, a, in an actual department, but I see this very common. I'd be, I'd be curious if anybody doesn't have this experience is that in every organization, let's say there's you know 30 people in an organization, we'll choose a small company, there's going to be two or three people, at least, two or three people in that organization that have a strength. Let's say they're a really good copywriter, or they're a really good salesperson, or they're very good at writing, uh, writing code. They know a particular software language. And so that's their strength. But what's happening is that that strength is not being used in a responsible way. So that person is, let's say they're, you know, that person uh, dominates meetings, doesn't leave space for other people, uh, doesn't uh, doesn't update the project management tool. So everybody's kind of wondering, you know, where are we on this project, right? And so, so and I've what seen happens? That movie. <laughs> yeah, you've seen that movie, right? And so what happens as leaders is what do we what do we do as our default? We look the other way. We think, oh well, they're good at well, but but she's good at her job. And what I say to leaders all the time, I says, no, she's not good at her job. If all somebody has is a technical skill, they're terrible at their job in the modern world. Because being good at your job in the modern world is being part of a team and being collaborative and being able to receive critical feedback and being learned to pivot. And so these, 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 that's a dinosaur persona that we allow, we we allow to perpetuate in our organizations where we have somebody who's, and, and we say this, man, I hear managers and see, oh, well, I can't say anything. They're really good at their job. But you just told me that every time you try to scale the organization, they undermine it. Yeah, but they're really good at their job. No, they're terrible at their job because their job <laughs> is to help you scale the organization. And they're failing at that job. Are you going to deal with that? Or are you going to keep telling the same old story again? All right. And so that's the strength is not enough. A technical strength is not enough. Be, that's 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 a that's a one trick pony, and and we live in a very dynamic world. And it's good to be a one trick pony in some ways, but you have to be able to pick your head up, see the people around you, see how your behavior is impacting others, be open to reflecting to them how their behavior is impacting you, because we live in a world where most technical tasks are increasingly automated, right? And you can buy almost anything for nine bucks a month these days. So. The responsibility of being a leader inside of an organization changes dramatically. Right, right. So, you know, as as we take a look at um, the 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 nature of uh, job responsibilities, and you you've described uh, very vividly how how we can't behave like we used to because things uh, have changed, and and part of that is the younger folks coming into the workplace who behave so totally different yeah. and, and your story about not updating uh, a um, project management system reminded me of, of the last person I brought on board to try to help with sales. And I could not for the life of me get him to update the, uh, the sales tool that we were using yeah. so that I could figure out what we were doing right or wrong. And um, you know, so the next chapter is about sweating the small stuff. And I think about my job as a leader is really not to sweat the small stuff, but in, in some cases you, you either get 
drawn back in or pulled back in, or you're compelled because you can't let go of control. So how has has that focus on detail and looking at things that are going on around you, how is that evolving? The, the key distinction that I try to make is the difference between micromanagement and mentoring. So to me, micromanagement is sweating the wrong small stuff, right? Micromanagement is like, you know, checking everything or feeling like you have to check everything five times before it goes out the door and, and letting yourself get bogged down right into the details and the, and the granular, uh, you know, deeply embedded uh, transactions that are happening in the organization. That's, that's not the way you want to go. Nobody wants to lead that way. Nobody wants to be led that way. Right. Nobody wants to be on a team of where that we're micromanaging, like your old boss, right? Who, no matter what you do, there's always going to be, you know, comments in the margin. So, so, but the, but if we make the pivot to mentoring, Mentoring is about relationships. Mentoring is about how people show up. And so to me, that's the opposite of micromanagement. That's saying to somebody, hey, look, you know, whether you're, let's say you're the direct manager of this person who's not, not updating the sales tool, is to, you have one very focused conversation with them. You know, we, we break it down in the accountability dollar, which we talk about later in the book, is to say to them, hey, um, I think there's some, there's not, we're not being clear enough about what your job description here is and, and what your role in the organization is. Your role is not just to make sales calls. Your role includes keeping everybody else up to speed on your progress and right. making sure the data is being tracked so that we can have the right metrics, so we can do the right marketing, so we can create the right operational flows, on and on and on, right? And so when, once you establish that clarity, and that takes 10 seconds, now you're measuring them against that clarity. Right. And you say, look, here, when you don't, let's, let's sit down. Can you, can you put yourself in the shoes of your teammates, right? How, what happens when you don't update this piece of software? And it, it happens very fast if we have the conversation. If we abdicate responsibility, then nothing happens. Then we just get frustrated and then ultimately we fire them or, or they move on or, or, or in some cases they get buried in some corner of the organization and they can stay there for years uh, causing problems for people. So it's really the distinction is in a very focused, very direct, as real time a way as possible saying, hey, here's how I see you showing up and here's how that's having an adverse impact on your teammates. It's, it's, it's undermining your relationship with me. It's undermining our, our customers, our stakeholders. And oh, by the way, it's undermining you from becoming the kind of professional that I think you want to become. Right. It's a very direct, it's, very, it's a very powerful, simple conversation. And then now you're freed up to do all the things that you should be doing as a leader. Well, I, I love part two of the book because it, it actually is the roadmap of everything that you just talked about, right? So it, it begins with uh, having a new agreement, which you just described, how you go about that. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit more about what you mentioned in Chapter 7, uh, which is the art of cultural listening. Mm. Tell me about that. There's one piece that I see, and my, again, myself included, is the hardest thing for us to see, is that there's a, I, sometimes I call it a slice of context. There's, there's one thing missing from our conversations. Most managers and leaders are pretty good at seeing what needs to change, but what we mostly miss is how did that situation come to exist in the first place? That's what cultural listening is about. Cultural listening is, it's, a, it's literally like a different part of our mind, and maybe it's a different part of our heart, to, to be able to step back in ourselves to look at a dynamic, look at a situation, two people on the team who, who can't seem to get along or 
some set of projects that keeps going off the rails or some piece of technology or some budgeting decision that we keep making over and over again and being able to ask in a, at a meta level, why is this happening? What not, not, not from a place of self blame. Oh, I'm such a terrible person because we keep, you know, buying software that doesn't work, but, <laughs> but what, what, why is that happening? Is what is my contribution to this dynamic without, without taking anybody else off the hook, right? Everybody is responsible for the culture change project. Everybody's responsible for the result. It's one team, whatever the organization is. I love this. Somebody, you know, gave me this example of Uber, right? They deal with like 15 seconds of an interaction, right? From the, when you pull a phone out of your pocket to the time you get into what is otherwise a taxi, right? And the moment right. you get out where you don't have, it's 15 seconds. And they have a $50 billion company where everybody is focused on making that better. That 15 second interaction and what, supporting that, 15 second interaction in one way or another. Everybody's on the same team, right? Everybody's trying to create the same result. But it mostly doesn't feel that way, right? Especially in larger organizations. But this, this, this willingness to step back, and I, and I always recommend people do this in leadership meetings, in management meetings, is to, to put aside the content. Okay, we know that Tom and Jennifer can't seem to get along. What if this has nothing to do with Tom and Jennifer? What is what's going on in our culture? What's going on? What, right. What's the message that we're sending as leaders that is creating the conditions where Tom and Jennifer, without taking them off the hook for having to look in the mirror, what are we doing as a leadership team to create this kind of dynamic? That's what cultural listening is all about. Mm. Powerful. So, you know, that really sets you up to the, the next one, which is, is really a culture of accountability. And I love how you talk about accountability as being a sort of love story. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's something that, you know, I had been in uh, many leadership positions, you know, some in larger companies, some in smaller companies. And I found myself as a, in a number two role in, a, in, in an organization. Uh, so I still had a lot of uh, a lot of power, a lot of authority. I was still, you know, as high as high up as you could be on the org chart without being the CEO. Uh, and I had a mentor who was, uh, from from my perspective at the time, on my case. Right, you know, I was responsible for marketing and sales, and explaining to her, she was not a marketing person; she was more of a salesperson. You know, what were we? What was our spend? What were we doing? What were the? You know, how how did it tie in with our overall goals? How how, how were things? integrated operationally or not integrated operationally. And I found myself, you know, really just getting frustrated and stewing about it and feeling like I had explained myself, uh, you know, over and over again. And, uh, and she was, you know, holding my feet to the fire and saying, I don't get it, you know, and I don't get it. I don't understand, you know, I, I can sort of make out the outlines, but I need more information. I want to really understand uh, the, de the detail, what you're saying in the detail so I can really grok it. And, uh, and I had, and I was really just, you know, beside myself. And at some point I just decided to the Sunday evening and I decided to try to outline, you know, what it was that I was doing. And through this process, I built this kind of spreadsheet. It was very kind of rudimentary in a way, but I just started, you know, I kind of went into this like, you know, uh, you know, crazy engineer moment of like, you know, dropping <laughs> data points and building ratios and building formulas and trying to paint a picture of what was happening in our marketing funnel from the from the very top to you know all the way through to the conversion points, and and I built out this model and I could tell even before I gave it to her I could tell that I was learning some things from this, but I had had so much resistance to doing that because I saw myself as an idea guy and moving right. things forward and and I, and I saw my value as being creative, 
and through this accountability love story of, of her not being, not accepting that strength, right? That was my version of a strength, but I wasn't using it in a responsible way. And so she held me accountable for saying, hey, Jonathan, what, yeah, that's great. You're great at coming up with ideas. I love these campaigns and, the, and these different initiatives, uh, but there's a last mile that you haven't, you haven't closed for me and you have to close. It's your job to close that last mile for me. And so and I feel forever grateful for that experience of what does that, what does that do when you have to stretch beyond the way you know how to, even if you're really great at something, right? When you have to stretch and find another dynamic in yourself to be able to articulate that strength, to be able to implement that strength in a totally right. new way. Right. Um, the rest of the second part, uh, you go into a, a great amount of detail on uh, what you call micromanagement reimagined, which I think you've just given us a, a glimpse into that. And you certainly have demonstrated uh, throughout this conversation about what Chapter 10 is all about, which is the perfect conversation. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, as I listen to these interactions that you're you're outlining, I mean, clearly these come out of personal experience, and I, I find myself thinking about many conversations that I wish I had had you there to coach me on, <laughs> uh, because I, I certainly have not always uh, affected the perfect conversation. Um, then in, uh, in in part three, uh, you really move on to again some some very very practical tools. Uh, you talk about uh, you know using kind of the movie metaphor, ha bringing more Yoda and less Superman into what we do. Mm. Yeah, and I, I wish there was a. I mean, I know it's you know two men or two male characters uh, in that in that uh, in that story. Uh, but obviously, you know, everybody knows Yoda and Superman. And I think that it's become a um, in the lexicon of my clients and the way they work is they, they say, oh, I really Superman that. Right. And, 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 and you know, women are just as good uh, and many are better at, uh, at superwomaning their way through the day. Uh, you know, and we could talk we could probably spend three hours talking about the, you know, the gender peculiarities of how we do that. But but what's common between men and women and really at all levels and that's really, really the heart of the book is that we, we somewhere along the way, we learned that our value as leaders was getting things done, solving problems and having answers. And what I'm challenging in that chapter of more Yoda, less Superman is Yoda got something incredible done, right? He got he got Luke to discover who he was and 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 find his own intrinsic motivation and to move through really stuck places in himself to believe in himself, right? To, to believe that he had uh, the capacity that he had doubted, right? He doubted in himself. Where if you think about Superman, right? Nobody ever learns from being saved by Superman, right? It's that classic, you know, <laughs> teach him how to fish. Right. You know, we could have said, we could have done it that too. Nobody ever, Superman never hangs around and debriefs and said, hey, so, you know, you really got yourself in a lot of trouble there. Um, have you thought about why you maybe did that? Because I might not be around to save you next time, right? He never has that conversation. He doesn't do, he's not an empowering leader. He's the ultimate disempowering leader. Whereas Yoda is a, is a very empowering leader who asks questions, doesn't give answers. And, you know, of course, is very playful and has fun with it, right? Yoda, he, who wouldn't want to work for Yoda, right? He's, he's awesome, right? He's a, he makes you laugh. He, 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 he appreciates the gravity of a, of a situation, but he, but it's always, ironically, he keeps it human. And, and I think that's, that's what's missing in so many of our cultures is that we, we try to muscle our way through. And, and the point that I try to make there is that the, the biggest blind spot, which is, you know, myself as much as anyone, is that we don't realize how our very presence 
disempowers people, right? If you know Superman or Superman, Superwoman is going to come save the day, how does that change how you That's relate with your work, yeah. right? It totally no, changes kidding. the culture. Um, so it seems to me like that leads right in to this next discussion, which is a fixer, fighter, or friend. So who mm. is the leader? And do they have yeah. to be all three? Yeah, what, what I tried to do in Fixer, Fighter, or Friend, and this has been a really fun one. We, you know, I built a quiz for on the website and people can, can fee, fee, find out which one they are, is I tried to break out, you know, as I, as I worked with clients, as, you know, after I had launched the business and I started introducing some of these ideas, I, I decided that, you know, Superman wasn't quite specific enough, that there's actually three kinds of Superman or superhero, let's say. One is the Fixer, the other is the Fighter, and the one is a Friend. And simply put, the fixer is kind of that boss you had, that micromanaging, you know, over attention to detail that is an incredible strength, right? The fixer, they care, right? They really care. They're the craftsperson. They really care about the quality of the result, that nothing is missed. But those people can be a real pain to work for, right? And so if they don't, if they don't learn how to balance that strength, again, how to use that strength in a responsible way. Having that ethic as a craftsperson is wonderful, it's lovely, but you can, be a, you can be a nightmare to work for or you can be an incredible person to work for in the way that you relate with that strength. The fighter is the person, this is more my theme, was the one who's always coming up with new ideas, uh, always see, is always kind of one step ahead of you know, what we could do. Well, what if we did this, right? right. And again, that, that can be a wonderful, incredible, valuable, powerful leadership quality. And that person could be a nightmare to work for or it can be a wonderful person to work for. And in terms of whether they, and really for the, for the fighter, it's do you, do you hold simultaneously with your new ideas, do you hold an appreciation for what the price that you pay for shifting course and the way that that torques the team when you just, you just made a commitment to do something and then three days later you decide to change direction. Maybe you need to do that. Maybe that's right. But you better be a hundred times more transparent and vulnerable and compassionate in those moments when you do it, or you'll lose your team. Right, right. I think I remember the, that particular remark. Oh, is that your? Yeah. And we'll look, yeah, before, I think so. Yeah. When we wrap, when we wrap up, we'll talk about sort of how they go together. But just to say quickly, the friend, and I'm seeing this a lot these days. The friend is the person who always has their door open. They, they'll answer every question. Hey, we're all on the same team here. They're the, they're always thinking about culture. They're always thinking about, you know, how are people doing? Trying to create team building workshops and positive vibes. And isn't it great here? And we're all doing good stuff. And again, that's wonderful. That's great quality in a leader. And the friend struggles with accountability. They have a really hard time holding people's feet to the fire and saying, Hey, you know what? We're, we are all on the same team here, but you're not pulling your weight. And here's how, and here are the impacts that that's having on the people around you. And I don't, and unfortunately people aren't telling you, but I see it as my job to let you know that I think that you're, that you're distancing yourself and you're, and you're, you're going to find yourself more and more on the outs of this conversation. And I don't want that for you. Mm-hmm. And so these, so these three leadership styles, fixer, fighter, or friend, and you can be a blend, you know, you can be, and, and what's interesting is you might find yourself that you're one at home and another one at work. That's really interesting and a really interesting conversation to have about how to, right. how to bring those two together. But it's a way to think about not to, not to stop doing what you're great at, but to find a way to do what you're great at in a way that, that empowers the people around you to develop that same skill in themselves. So as you're beginning to wrap up the book, uh, and, and uh, I actually uh, was this is at the end, uh, rather than kind of setting the stage at the beginning. You, you then dig in and talk about the five imp- 
employee archetypes mm. and and how those play out and and the dynamics uh you know back with the leader and and then uh i'm going to ask you to go straight in because we're we're getting to the top of the hour here uh just go straight into what you mean by pull the thread mm. uh, so if you'll comment on the archetypes and then then tell us you know what what's at the end of all of this how do we how do we actually activate mm-hmm. becoming that good authority you bet so the so the five employee personas that i that i left till the end of the book there really are five different styles of how people tend to relate with authority so a lot of the book is about leadership and how we show up as leaders and the last chapter is how different people again based on their experience based on their life experience their personal experience their you know, personal convictions, whatever their, whatever their belief structure is, how they relate with authority. And it can be very helpful to understand, you know, oh, what, what kind of, a, what kind of a dynamic am I dealing with? Because then you can have a more precise conversation and a, and a more empowering one. So the people can go into those and, and there's, there's a lot of content in the book there about those, about those five personas. What I mean by pull the thread is, in, and this is true in every organization that I've ever been a part of, every organization that I've ever worked in, every organization that I've ever led, every organization that I've ever consulted to or coached, is that there's, a, there's something going on in that culture. It's usually only one thing, but there's one dynamic that is holding the organization back, right? There's some element of fear. There's some element of need too much control. There's some element of toxicity in some form or another. That doesn't mean that the leaders are bad people. It means that there's something that has happened that has brought the organization to this point where people don't feel seen, people don't feel valued, and, and, vo- and people feel like they don't have a voice. And what pulling the thread is, is saying, you know what, I'm going to accept as a business owner, as a, as a leader, I'm going to accept as a, as a construct that that's true about my organization. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what we're going to discover, but I'm going to assume that in order to heal my culture, in order to create the workplace of the future, that something like that is happening in my organization. Pulling the thread is starting the conversation with your team and saying, God, you know what, guys, I don't know what it is. You probably have some ideas that I don't. I also right. see some things that, that you may not. But the culture change project, it's not about some top-down initiative. It's not about bringing in some high-priced consultant and mm-hmm. running through a bunch of exercises that we're all going to forget. It's about all of us starting a new conversation here about what does it mean to show up at work? How do we show up with each other and starting to bring in the things that, that we're not talking about today. Everybody has something that they're not talking about, some vulnerability that they're not showing up with, some criticism or judgment that they haven't worked through yet. Those are those things that that's what we're going to do as a team and we're going to do it together. That's what pulling the thread is all about. I love that, and and you you kind of uh, close out by talking about the fact that you know becoming the leader that your team is waiting for is really distilled down to the fact that you're holding them accountable for growing themselves, and yes. and we've always been taught that as a leader it's your job, you know, to help them grow. But if they're they're not willing and and complicit and and, and you know willing to be held accountable. Uh, and if we had another hour to talk, I'd, I'd kind of go off into the parenting thing. <laughs> I, I'm I am the parent of a, a teenage boy, and it, it's quite interesting the difference in dynamic between, uh, you know, establishing 
that responsibility for growth and, and that mm. it really is their responsibility. I, I had a very different experience with my, my daughter who's now 18 and at the University mm. of Warsaw in Poland, you know, for her first year of college by herself, you know. So um, anyway, I, I so appreciate uh, you sharing uh, this with us. And, and you've got, again, such powerful tools in this book. You've, you've got a, a manifesto, which I wish we had the time to read, but I, I'm going to encourage people to go out and either get the Kindle uh, edition of the book or, or you know, to pick up uh, the hard copy of the book and, and read that manifesto because it's, it's really uh, the roadmap for, for how we accomplish this. So, uh, again, the book that we have been talking about today is Good Authority, How to Become the Leader Your Team is Waiting For. And we've been talking to Jonathan Raymond. Jonathan, will you let folks know how they can get in touch with you, uh, you know, if they're interested in, in your program for their company or if they just want to follow you on social media? What do they do? Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm on Twitter at Jonathan Raymond and on LinkedIn. People ha- would love to get uh, some invitations from some, some of your listeners so we can continue the conversation. My website is refound.com, so like rebound, but with an F, like Frank. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've got a ton of free tools and, and quizzes and, and some guides and, and really just to kind of start the conversation around what this looks like. And so there's some, some really good, uh, well, I think it's really good material on the website to, to continue that conversation. <laughs> well, of course and, you do, and I bet yeah. your mother too. <laughs> yes, she does. My mother actually thinks it's great. And uh, and what I would say is that, you know, there there are multiple ways to to do this. Uh, and I'll just put the call out. You know, if you if you've been listening to this uh, to this conversation and you think, you know, I I want this for my organization. In addition to the online courses and the things that I do that are that are scalable, I do one thing which is not scalable, which is I work with one organization at a time with one CEO who's really committed to these ideas, who reads the book and says, yes, I I want it. I want somebody to work this through with me. Um, and I do a you know different you know kind of scope engagement, but I work with one organization at a time uh, with CEO or company founder who who really you know feels connected to these ideas and, and wants to have a guide through the process. And you can always find me at uh, hello at refound.com. Terrific. Well, thank you so, so much. And, and for those of you who've been listening, uh, thank you. And I do hope you take uh, Jonathan up on his offer to connect to him. And uh, absolutely grab yourself a copy of the book. Uh, next week we have a, a very, very different show, uh, another Back by Popular Demand series from uh, one of our former authors, uh, Michelle Howe. And, and Michelle has written a book called Caring for Aging Parents. And, and while this is not generally one of the topics we talk about uh, in this show because we're about leadership and growth and innovation, uh, your ability to lead and grow and innovate when you're also caring for aging parents <laughs> is a real challenge. And uh, so if you've been through that or you're going through it or you know someone who is, you will want to be uh, on this particular program next Friday, October 21st at noon Eastern. And uh, the subtitle of her book is Lessons in Love, Loss, and Letting Go. And you will really enjoy Michelle. Uh, She is absolutely terrific. So thank you again. And if you want to know more about becoming a part of the Game Changer Network, just go to thegamechanger.network. We are launching some really interesting programs in 2017 uh, with some local uh, Game Changer groups. And so... Thank you again for joining us, and go out and change something specific in your game today. Thank you so much.
You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas, inspiration, innovation with Chickie Fitzgerald. Oh, 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 oh,